The article that we're looking at today really drives home the complex connection between depression and three neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and Huntington's disease. And even though depression has a high comorbidity with all of these diagnoses, the authors argue that it should not be an assumed part of the disease process. Instead, depression should be recognized as distinct and treated as such. But here's where things get complicated. In some cases, the medications traditionally used to treat depression do not work for this population and can in fact be actively harmful. So OT approaches like environmental enrichment and physical exercise could actually be the frontline defense for helping these patients manage their depression. To unpack all of this, I am so incredibly thankful to be joined today by dementia care expert Rachel Wiley, MSOTRLCDP. Her and I will be discussing what this research means for your OT care. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of depression in neurodegenerative diseases, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. It is only $89 per year to join our club, making it one of the most affordable and easiest ways to earn your CEUs, so I really hope you consider joining us in there. But bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to recognize the evidence-supported OT interventions for depression in Alzheimer's. And our second learning objective is you will be able to identify the evidence-supported OT interventions for depression in Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will bring on Rachel Wiley to discuss how this research could play out in your practice. The article that we are discussing today is called Depression in Neurodegenerative Diseases, colon, Common Mechanisms and Current Treatment Options. It comes to us from the Journal of Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, and it was published in 2019. And this article was ranked eighth on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. So diving into this article, the authors begin with this just quick intro to major depressive disorder. So major depressive disorder is a highly prevalent psychiatric condition impacting people across all demographics. In the United States, the lifetime prevalence of MDD, or major depressive disorder, is an estimated 17%, and it is one of the leading causes of disability worldwide. The typical presentation of MDD can include depressed mood, reduced interest in pleasurable activities, cognitive impairment, feelings of guilt and worthlessness, and suicidal ideation. Okay, so that's depression by itself. What do we know about depression and neurodegenerative diseases? So even though MDD can present at any age, there are certain circumstances in which clinicians must be hypervigilant in recognizing a client's increased risk of mood disorder. And one of these times is after the diagnosis of a chronic and or untreatable condition such as a neurodegenerative disease. However, diagnosing depression in this context can be difficult, as one of the criteria for the diagnosis of depression is that the symptoms cannot be explained by another condition. So in the article we're looking at today, the authors walk us through our current understanding of the mechanisms behind depression and three neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and Huntington's. They highlight not only the distinct features of depression in this context, but also the similarities between the mechanisms of depression and the mechanisms of these three diseases. The authors also discuss what this means for treatment. 
So before diving into how depression intersects with these three diseases, the authors examine what we know about the causes of depression. The common understanding that depression results from a chemical imbalance is actually oversimplified. In reality, there is no universal mechanism that fully explains the causes of depression. The authors go in-depth into some of the proposed mechanisms, and they have a handy infographic to illustrate these, which I'll link to in the club and you can look at in the article. But just to give you this big high-level picture, some of the proposed mechanisms of depression, there's six of them. Some of them are neuroinflammation, oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction, a decrease of neurotrophic factors like BDNF, and also genetic factors. So big picture, depression has this complex interconnection of these biological factors that could be driving it. So from there, turning to what are the mechanisms behind neurodegenerative diseases? So different neurodegenerative diseases have different causes and distinct presentations, but there is a significant overlap in the mechanisms behind them. So some of the mechanisms behind these diseases include atypical protein assembly, reduced trophic support and neuroplasticity, oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction, and neuroinflammation. And hopefully in that list, you heard that there's this overlap with the possible causes of depression, that neuroinflammation, the oxidative stress, and the reduced trophic support. So these overlapping mechanisms create this complex web in which these disorders can influence and exacerbate each other. So knowing those big picture biological mechanisms, let's look really high level at how depression co-occurs with these three disorders, and I'm going to really highlight the implications for treatment. So first, Alzheimer's disease and MDD. Again, that major depressive disorder is highly prevalent in patients with Alzheimer's disease. There is a wide range of reported incidents due to variations in diagnostic criteria, but to give you a general sense of where we stand, one study that they linked to reports that MDD is present in about 40% of Alzheimer's cases. And compared to patients who are diagnosed with either Alzheimer's or major depressive disorder alone, the number of hospitalizations is considerably higher for patients who present with both AD and MDD. And most significantly, there is an increased mortality rate for individuals with comorbid depression and Alzheimer's. So looking at treatment, the evidence is variable in quality, but there are a few non-pharmological strategies that appear to alter the course of depression in Alzheimer's. They highlight a 2017 study that showed specific regimens of music therapy had effectiveness, and then another 2017 study that showed reminiscence therapy, multisensory stimulation therapy, and behavioral management with occupational therapy can also be beneficial, but more research is needed in these areas. And lastly, in these non-pharmacological strategies, they shared that exercise has mixed reports as a treatment, but it should be noted that physical activity can reduce the risk for both depression and neurodegeneration. And regarding medication, there is actually evidence against the effectiveness of common depression medications like SSRIs, SNRIs, and MAOIs for this population. Non-traditional agents like omega-3 supplementation show promise, but more research is needed. I should also note here that in the article, they are going way more in-depth than what I am highlighting here. So definitely, if you are particularly interested in one of these categories, please refer back to this article because there is a lot of data and nuance that I'm not able to capture on this podcast. But turning to Parkinson's disease and MDD... Studies show that 10 to 45% of Parkinson's patients are affected by clinically significant depression. Compared to all other motor and non-motor symptoms, MDD has been identified as the greatest predictor of quality of life for individuals with Parkinson's disease. And unfortunately, depression in this population is underrecognized by physicians. So looking at treatment... They highlight one clinical study that found that aerobic physical exercise had a positive effect on both motor symptoms and scores on the Beck Depression Inventory. 
Deep brain stimulation and repetitive transcranial stimulation have also been shown to improve depressive symptoms. Regarding medication, the article provides an in-depth examination of pharmacological options. And while some have shown some effectiveness, they are also associated with negative side effects. And then the third category we're looking at is Huntington's disease and MDD. Most studies suggest the prevalence of depression in Huntington's disease ranges between 15 and 69%. Depression is the most common psychiatric complaint in HD patients, and studies have found that depressive symptoms may precede motor and cognitive symptoms by years, if not decades. It has been proposed that the psychiatric symptoms of HD may affect quality of life more than the classic motor symptoms. It is also critical to note that suicide rates among individuals with HD is four to six times higher than the general population. Hence, it is paramount to diagnose and treat MDD early in these patients. So looking at treatment, MDD has been markedly undertreated in patients with HD. In fact, about half of Huntington's disease patients who show depressive symptoms end up receiving no treatment for them. And unfortunately, even when patients do receive treatment, there is a significant lack of evidence to guide their care path. Regarding non-pharmacological treatment, an older 2001 study showed an improved quality of life for HD patients who engaged in motivational therapy. Physical exercise and environmental enrichment have also shown promise in mice models, but we don't fully know how those results translate to people with HD. There is also just this lack of evidence in regard to medication. The article does call out one medication that is definitely not recommended and provides some mechanistic support for why some others may be more beneficial. So turning to the author's discussion, they share that despite years of research, there is still no effective treatment to prevent the progression of AD, PD, and HD. Depressive symptoms are very common in patients with these diagnoses, and depression increases the overall burden of the disease. Therefore, appropriate non-pharmacological and or pharmacological treatment is essential. The demand for new effective interventions is further underscored by the poor effectiveness of standard antidepressant therapy to treat depression that co-occurs with these diseases. Instead, interventions used with these patients must target the specific mechanisms that contribute to their depression. For instance, physical exercise and environmental enrichment improve neuroplasticity by increasing BDNF, a protein that contributes to neuroplasticity. These interventions have shown positive effects in patients with MDD and neurodegenerative conditions, but more studies are needed to prove their effectiveness when these are comorbid. Okay, that was a lot of science to wrap our brains around. And honestly, I just scratched the surface. I really encourage you, if this is a topic of interest to you, to really read this article in full. There is just a lot to unpack there. But for our purposes today, for thinking about what this evidence means for OT practice, I am just so thankful to be joined by someone who has really built her career around OT for dementia, and that is Rachel Wiley. Rachel is an occupational therapist and the founder and owner of Day by Day Dementia Consulting and the Dementia Collaborative LLC. Rachel is certified in skills to care for caregivers of individuals living with dementia, and she is a certified dementia practitioner. Rachel is also a certified master trainer of skills to care through Jefferson Elder Care and trains occupational therapists from around the world in the skills to care program. She is also currently a volunteer advisory council member for the Dementia Society of America. Previously, Rachel was an adjunct faculty in the occupational therapy departments at Thomas Jefferson University and Temple University. She also worked as the Occupational Therapist and Dementia Service Coordinator for the Pew Charitable Trust Grant with Jefferson Elder Care. And as a financial disclosure, as I mentioned, Rachel does teach that Skills to Care Dementia program, and she takes a 
salary from the Dementia Collaborative for this. I do think we mentioned skills to care in this conversation. I should note, though, that even if you are a skills to care certified therapist, this is relatively new research that we are processing real time. So I think that you will still benefit from this conversation and hearing how Rachel wraps her mind around it. So without further ado, it is just my pleasure to patch Rachel into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm honored to be here. I am so thankful you are here. This article was a beast to read. (laughs) It was difficult to summarize. There was so much science, but it felt really important. There were, seemed to be some really important takeaways just for me personally. And I'm always so curious how you're processing it as someone who's more in this dementia world than I am. Thanks, Sarah. I agree. It was it was a complex article. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, before we get to it, I just want to hear a little bit more about your origin story. And I guess just start with how you first found OT. Yes. So I actually found out about OT when I was in seventh grade, (laughs) um, which I know is a little unique because I know a lot of people don't hear about it until a bit later in sometimes their schooling or career path. But in seventh grade, I had a science teacher, Miss Moore, (laughs) who assigned different either diseases or conditions to each of us to do a little paper project on. And she suggested I look at autism. And so while doing this project on autism, I found out that occupational therapy is an intervention typically seen with children with autism. And I also learned that we had a family friend whose son had autism. So I became really interested in the role of occupational therapy with children with autism. Then as my schooling progressed, I started to use any opportunity to write any papers or projects on OT and learned more about the scope of this profession and that, you know, it wasn't just working with children with autism, but it was also working with older adults and in hospitals and schools and all sorts of settings. And I loved the flexibility aspect of that. Yeah, so I think at one point I was kind of debating, do I want to go more into special education? Do I want to go into occupational therapy? And at the end of the day, I chose OT because I felt like it had the most adaptability, flexibility, and I knew I was someone who often changed my mind. So I felt like OT, this gave me the chance to change my mind, which worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I relate so much to that. I also found out about OT in seventh grade in a I career class. <laughs> it like floated between all kinds of ideas after that, but came back to the whole holistic nature of OT. Yes. And, oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. Starting, so you found out about it as OT for autism. But when I think of you, I think dementia OT. Like, yes. I think that's part of your email address, like yes. dementia OT. <laughs> How did that specialization come to be? Yeah, great question. So I guess my interest in older adults, while I was interested in children with autism, my interest in working with older adults did at least kind of start with my first job. So when I was around 15, 16, I was working as what was called a diet aide, kind of like a just a waitress, but with yeah. a little <laughs> tiny bit more responsibility, mostly in a, the skilled nursing facility and memory care aspects of a continuing care retirement community. So really loved that job. I, I didn't understand dementia. I didn't know that that was what I was often working with when I was interacting with these residents. But I really did appreciate the time with these residents, the different personalities. I think it was a very unique job. It was not a traditional waitressing job. So I really loved that. And then moving forward after that, my great aunt, so my grandmother's sister had dementia. And we actually found out kind of overnight that my mom was going to be the primary care partner. So my great aunt uncle had passed away and we didn't know that my mom was listed as next of kin. So really overnight, my mom was a primary care partner for a woman with moderate dementia living alone. So really she was thrown into the fire of 
caregiving or care partnering, learning firsthand what it looks like to support someone with dementia who was forgetting to take her medication. She was having difficulty remembering to bathe. You know, she would do little things like making coffee in the coffee grounds container and putting it back in the cabinet Mm. or storing the dish soap. Because I had a picture of a lemon on it, she would store that in the refrigerator. So just all of these little challenges that were coming up that we had no idea how to address. So that was certainly some firsthand exposure and experience. And then my grandmother ended up getting dementia as well. So we saw firsthand with that what care in a CCRC looks like. And also from my perspective, the lack of understanding and education from the healthcare team. I really didn't feel like our healthcare team was supportive, really understood how to support her or us. And that was definitely fuel to my fire. (laughs) So all of that combined, I think I still really like working with a variety of populations. But when it came down to it, I feel like dementia care is something that's so needed and that a lot of of OTs weren't necessarily gravitating toward. (laughs) So that was really the reason that I chose to dive into dementia care. Hmm. Yeah, there was so much science and numbers in this article, but just every time I hear the numbers around dementia and the increasing need for care, it is staggering. And I bet everyone listening can think of people in their lives that has needs and a lot of unmet needs around dementia. Absolutely. Yeah, the statistics right now are, and this is just for Alzheimer's disease, so this doesn't include all of the other types of dementia. Right now, you'll hear somewhere between one in nine and one in 10 people who are 65 years and older, which I don't know about you, but I think that's really young. (laughs) So a lot of older adults. And then when we get to 85, it's one in three people 85 and older have Alzheimer's. So Definitely really, really high statistics there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you overlay that with people living longer and that increased need for care. Absolutely. Yes. A lot of people in the community have some form of dementia and it impacts many, many families. Mm-hmm. So you're fully immersed in this dementia OT world. And I guess turning to our article, I'm just curious to hear what your initial impressions were. What did you learn? What surprised you? Yeah, what were those first impressions? Yes. Oh my gosh, so many first impressions, Sarah. The first one is that this was a complex article. Yeah. Fascinating. I mean, fascinating to think about, and I say fascinating with compassion, but fascinating to think about the the overlap between the anatomical, you know, brain structures that are impacted in depression, but also in Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease. I honestly was really surprised by the ineffectiveness of pharmacologic intervention. You know, I've always known that pharmacologic intervention is not particularly effective at addressing neurocognitive or dementia-related behavior, but I was unaware of the ineffectiveness of medication on addressing, or at least traditional antidepressants in addressing depression, specifically in, in Alzheimer's disease. And along those same lines, fascinated that The medications that we typically see prescribed to people with dementia, usually we see Aricept prescribed early on, the generic is Dinepazil, and then later as the disease progresses, people are often prescribed Namenda or the generic is Memantine, that those were actually potentially more effective at addressing depression in people with Alzheimer's disease than antidepressants. So that, to me, that just blew my mind. (laughs) That's really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, and I think other kind of overall impressions, just this, you know, this is really interesting and helpful information as it relates to supporting people with Alzheimer's, supporting people with Parkinson's and Huntington's. But there are a lot of people living with dementia that don't have these diseases. So thinking about, you know, vascular dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, frontotemporal dementia, I'm curious if this information generalizes to those populations. So I'll be interested in potentially future yes. that shows us what that looks like. Yeah. And I, I think 
The other really clear thing to me with this article is the clear role for us as occupational therapists in working with these populations, which is exciting for our profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels like the people who wrote the article saw non-pharmacological treatment as a frontline option because not that medication is totally ineffective because they're they definitely spelled out like there are certain ones that yes. seem more effective in different aspects but they carry side effects with them there's tons of complexity so it does feel like the front line is the kind of work that we do yeah it, I felt a lot of weight for us like yes, exactly. like oh there are no other easy <laughs> answers like yeah it feels like a lot of weight for our treatments. Absolutely. I agree. And I think, again, that's true of, I know that we're focusing on depression here, but when we think of what's often referred to as behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, so all of those other aspects, agitation and wandering and rummaging and all of these other potentially behavioral symptoms of dementia, it's the same thing that the research shows us that it's non-pharmacologic interventions that are the ones that don't have the negative side effects and that have the potential to have the most substantial improvement. So yes, definitely some weight on our shoulders in yes. supporting these families. <laughs> yeah, there's so it feels like there's so much work for OTs in this space, like not just addressing depression, but all these other symptoms. But I think the other thing I was thinking about too was the importance of like differentiating when there is a depression and yes. not assuming that that's part of the disease process. Yes. Like that is something that we should be noting and flagging in our brains and treating specifically. Yeah. It almost feels like we might have this bias or like be wary of a bias of like, oh, they have dementia. So there, of course, there's a depression and I shouldn't do anything about it. This really refutes that. Absolutely. Is that how you were thinking about it before? Like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Were you thinking of it as? That's a great question. I think and. I know we'll talk a bit about, you know, if I screen <laughs> um, my clients for dementia. Yes, I do think that it's an important consideration. I don't know that I necessarily differentiated it as significantly as this article makes me feel like I need to be. For example, if, if a care partner told me they were highly concerned about their family member's inactivity or apathy or, you know, something like that, then that would be something that we clearly focused on. So we would say, okay, is this happening because of depression? How do we work on addressing this? But I don't know that it was necessarily something where I would say, okay, you have concerns about your family member repeating or shadowing you, and we need to address the fact that they have depression as well. Not to say it never happened, but I don't know that I had as much of a focus there. And I think to your point, Sarah, it also a lot of times goes back to just an overall stigma. I think we're really working on just a stigma with dementia and that people think it's it's almost like a death sentence that it's like, okay, well, I have a neurodegenerative disease, so my life is over. But that's not the case at all. You know, there's so so much that can be done um, at every stage of the disease to support people to live a meaningful life, to have a good quality of life. And just because somebody has dementia does not mean that they always have depression. So to your point, I think we need to differentiate that because it's not just part of the package. Yes. Yep. There felt like there was this consistent theme where depression symptoms were most tied to overall quality of life. That to me felt very like anecdotally true when I think yes. about the people that I know who suffer from these diseases and their different experiences. And I was curious, like you have such a wider sample size of people that you've worked with. Have you seen that where depression feels really tied to that quality of life? I would say anecdotally, yes. I would have to pull like the quality of life and Alzheimer's disease scale and depression. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. No, for sure. But I would say, and I mean, the article indicates that that is true. I would say anecdotally, yes. And I would say that it also impacts the care partner's quality of life. 
which is to me just as significant. We really need to be thinking about the family unit and how we're supporting care partners when working with these individuals as well. Yeah, so many important takeaways from this article. Yes. I want to ask you some specifics about like your treatment process and how you're thinking, how you've thought about things and now how you're thinking about things going forward. And I want to start at like the screening process and about is depressive symptoms something you've been screening for? And I also want to ask about suicidal ideation that came up in the article. How have you thought about that historically and anything you're going to do differently moving forward? Yeah, great question, Sarah. So this is one where first, and I know this isn't your specific question, but first I want to note that I always screen care partners. And again, I think that's often a piece of the puzzle that we leave out, but care partners of people living with dementia are at a higher risk for depression than even care partners of older adults with other chronic conditions. So this population is particularly vulnerable. So I know that that wasn't specifically addressed in the article, but I do think it's a really important component that we need to be talking about when we're providing this type of service. So I often use the Skills to Care program, which embeds what's called the PHQ-9 depression screen. It's the patient health questionnaire. This has nine screening questions. Again, this one's specifically for the care partner. And the very last question is a question embedded to screen for suicidal ideation. So I do administer that to all of the care partners with whom I work. And then for my patient or the individual living with dementia, yes, I screen for depression and there's some caveats. So I would say when possible, I often use the PHQ-9 with them as well, the patient health questionnaire, because again, that last question does address suicidal ideation. This particular assessment, I would say, is more appropriate for people with mild or maybe mild to moderate dementia, but the questionnaire itself, I believe, is a bit more complex than what most people with more moderate to severe dementia can answer. And mostly that's because there are four options when you answer. It will ask you, you know, not at all, several days, nearly every day, or I forgot there's one other one in there, but there's four possible options. That's a lot of options for somebody with dementia to answer. So another depression screen that I'll use if that seems too complex is the geriatric depression screen that just has yes or no questions. So that's usually a little easier for people with dementia to answer. So I will administer that to my clients living with dementia. We do have to consider a few things too. Yes, we want to screen. We want to hear the perspective and opinions of someone living with dementia, but we can't always rely on their report to assume that, yes, this screen is positive or negative. This goes for depression. It goes for pain. You know, oftentimes people with dementia, when given a yes or no question, the answer for them is going to be no. There's a lot of reasons for that, but we won't get into all of that today. (laughs) But oftentimes they're going to say no. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So if we ask someone if they have pain and they say no, we can't assume that they don't have pain. If we ask someone if they're feeling sad or depressed and they say no, we can't assume that that's 100% the case. So we do have to rely heavily on our clinical observational skills and care partner report. So these are really crucial when working with individuals. Again, I know I'll say this over and over, but making sure we're involving that care partner, that family member, whoever's providing that type of care and support because they know their family member better than anyone else. They're going to be able to note changes in their affect, in their mood, probably more so than even we might be able to. So yes, we want to pick up on facial expressions. Um, We want to note, you know, changes in their eating habits and their activity level, all those types of things. But we also want to make sure we're talking to the care partner about that as well. Along those same lines, when we think about suicidal ideation in people living with dementia, I 
well, I should add <laughs> this caveat as well that I work with the Allen's Cognitive Disabilities Model. So I'm a big fan of screening with the Allen's Lacing Screen and then doing the ADM craft assessment. So I rely very heavily on understanding my patient's functional cognitive level to understand how to set up the environment and activities. But I also think that this comes into play when we think about suicidal ideation as well. If someone is scoring at an Allen's level 4.0 or above, they are goal-directed meaning that they still have the ability to implement, they might need support, but implement steps to achieve an end goal versus somebody who's functioning maybe at an Allen's level three or lower. They likely at that point are not goal-directed, so they're not conceptually working towards an end goal. And I bring this up because when we think about the risk of suicide in our patients, being goal-directed is a component and one where we do have to consider how substantial is the risk. Is this person still goal-directed? Are they experiencing suicidal ideation? And if so, this risk is greater than somebody who maybe is no longer goal-directed. It's not to say we're not going to still address our concerns, but maybe the risk isn't as high in somebody who's no longer goal-directed. I hope that all makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and that, or just hearing you talk to me connects to like, oh, of course this article was really complex because we're wading into such complex interplays of things. And the article only touched on a sliver of that. Like, it was super complex and we were just looking at a sliver. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you kind of, tick through the big picture treatments that they talked about. And I know they were like different for all three conditions, but there were definitely like some big picture treatments that kept coming up. The first was exercise. I think that had like the strongest implications for Parkinson's, which makes sense with the dopamine system that's happening there. But it came up in all three categories. And to be honest, I had never thought a lot about dementia and exercise, which I, as I'm saying that a lot, I'm like, that's one of my biases being re- revealed right there. Yeah. How, how do you think about exercise in your treatments? And I don't know, what did the article make you think of related to that? Yeah. Oh, this is a really interesting topic as well, because to your point, Sarah, I think Exercise and Parkinson's disease, you know, we have the evidence to support that, not only in a treatment for PD motor symptoms, but also for MDD in Parkinson's. So I think for certain diagnoses and populations, this needs to be a very high priority. (laughs) And we need to think about how to, again, work with the family unit, with the dyad, whoever that primary care partner is, and figure out how to incorporate exercise into daily routine. When we think about Alzheimer's, I know that evidence was a bit mixed. So some studies show that there is some benefit. Other studies didn't show any substantial benefit. What we do know is that cardiovascular activity can reduce risk depression and can also reduce risk of Alzheimer's. I don't want to imply that that it's preventative, you know, implying that it would prevent Alzheimer's 100% of the time would just be false. It can, however, reduce risk. So these, I think, are really great things to consider, especially before <laughs> diagnoses <laughs> as preventative or reducing risk measures, but also to think about for people who are in the earlier stages, you know, using exercise as a treatment modality, I think can be really helpful. What I want to encourage everyone to consider with exercise, when we think about people living with dementia who have moderate or severe dementia, so I'm thinking about Alzheimer's, not early stage. Again, we really have to think about the whole picture here. So coming into the home and just prescribing a home exercise program 
to someone living with dementia is just not going to be realistic, right? A person living with dementia probably can't initiate this home exercise program on their own. They probably can't engage in this independently without care partner support, potentially could cause some resistance, agitation, and then conflict between the care partner and the individual living with dementia. So we have to think about what is the impact of asking someone with living with dementia to do this. And also what's the impact on the care partner? If we say to the care partner, you have to do the exercises with your family member every day. Again, is that creating additional burden for them? Is that realistic in their routine? If they're already handling and managing all of these other things, is that the most realistic intervention? Maybe not. So then we want to think more, I kind of frame it as more of a home activity program more so than exercise. Because I do think that movement and meaningful engagement is crucial for all people living with some form of cognitive impairment. Just all people in general. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Focusing on cognitive impairment here. So in that case, you know, we can talk about can you get up and move by, can you walk the dog together? Can you get the mail together. For some people, it's just, can we walk to the bathroom? For other people, it's just tapping along to the music. But for some of my clients, again, especially with mild dementia or early stage Alzheimer's, they might still go to the gym. They might have their normal workout routine. So it can really vary depending on stage and degree of functioning and also what were their previously enjoyed occupations. <laughs> so we have to consider that when considering exercise as well. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like something we should be tuned into for a variety of reasons and knowing that there's all kinds of ways to get movement. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, and supporting the person in whatever that looks like. And I don't want to imply, like, I don't want to say don't exercise. <laughs> like, yes, exercise is great. But I think to go into a home or or work with a patient in a in a you know outpatient setting, hospital setting, and say to the family, you need to do these exercises with your family member once a day, twice a day, three times a day. I just think we're not looking at this holistically. We're not asking the care partner what's most important to them. We're not thinking about the other burdens and challenges they're experiencing if we're putting this, you know, expectation on them that they have to now engage their family member in an exercise routine every day. Yeah. One of the other treatments that came up multiple times in the three categories was this environmental enrichment and seeing how that can have just like a direct influence on our biology and then intersect with the disease process and depression. And I think of the article too, that came up in multiple ways, like there was music therapy, there was multisensory therapy, and they, I think, kind of lumped it into this environmental enrichment. Mm -hmm. How do you think about environmental enrichment? Like what falls into that for you? And what does that look like in treatment for you? I think environmental enrichment is pretty much everything we do as OTs. <laughs> it's, it's all meaningful activity engagement, right? And that does, the reason I think that there are so many examples in the literature is because that does cover a broad range. There are a lot of different meaningful activities <laughs> to meet people's desires and interests and passions and roles. So I think that when, when we talk about environmental enrichment, this can be social engagement, it can be music, it can be reminiscing and storytelling, it can be, you know, participating in making a meal, it can, it can be more passive. I think listening to music is an example of something that's a bit more passive as well, but you know, there are a variety of, of ways that we can achieve this. Again, I don't necessarily go into any specific case with an idea in mind of like, this is what we're going to do <laughs> with this family because everyone is so different. I mean, again, that's just the nature of OT. Everyone has different passions, interests. So we really try to focus on what did this individual living with dementia enjoy doing prior to their diagnosis? What were their roles in their potentially if they had a job or what were their roles at home? What do they do for leisure? 
And how can we now adapt them to meet their current functional cognitive levels so they can still have familiar, enjoyable activities that bring them some sense of joy and purpose? But yeah, I think there's so much variation in what that looks like for each individual living with dementia. But again, how perfect, because this is, this is us. <laughs> this is OT. Um, this is where it's, it's really, again, exciting that we have such a, a substantial role in working with these populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this article, like, pushed me to uh, think about those things that we're always doing, these meaningful activities, and to think about the impact it's having on, like, at the brain level. Yes. I think it's specifically yes. said, like, BDNF factor is affected by environmental enrichment. Yes. And that is not a level I've thought about related to occupation. And it was just exciting to see the science that backs that up. Like, someone's looking at the little brain chemicals that are firing as a result of that. And it's a powerful biological mechanism. Yeah. I completely agree with you, Sarah. I had the same, same kind of moment of like, oh yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's what we're we, doing. we see this with our clients, with our patients. We know that what we're doing has an impact, but to know that someone's testing it at a biological level and yes, it has an impact even down to the, the nitty gritty brain structure is really, really cool. Yeah, and like they're comparing that to like a pharmacological intervention and kind of like weighing the effect on the biology in similar ways. And I think that's a direction like we need to start thinking about our OT and it's really broad and hard to wrap your mind around, but it seems really powerful. I agree. I think, you know, it is, I'm glad that we're seeing some research out there that is addressing some of this. I think because there is so much that can fall under environmental enrichment, it's probably hard to to test all of it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but yeah. it's really great to see that certain interventions that we are seeing the data to come out to support this. Yeah, I think it's it's beautiful and really speaks volumes to the impact that we can have on people with neurodegenerative conditions and MDD. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask also about sleep and diet. Diet was mentioned like a little bit like the benefit or the possible benefits of omegas threes. I think I was just thinking about that as I was reading, like associating like depression with like lack of sleep or too much sleep and wondering if you're talking about these things with your patients and what does that look like and what does that look like when de- depression is possibly layered on? Yeah. So sleep is definitely something that we talk about quite often in dementia care. Before I dive into exactly what that looks like, I will say that we often talk about rest and sleep and diet as part of a few different pillars of overall brain health. So when we talk about brain health, you'll often hear that there are five pillars. Sometimes you'll hear six, but usually we go with five pillars of brain health, and that includes having a heart-healthy diet, (laughs) cardiovascular activity, So those are the two big ones that we've been talking about so far. Rest and sleep, socialization, and then cognitively stimulating activity, which again, in my mind, is all of those environmental enrichment activities that we were talking about. So if we have those five pillars of brain health, again, with no one particular emphasis on any one of them, but just collectively, they are our brain health pillars, we can generally say that's what what is heart healthy is brain healthy. So oftentimes you'll see, specifically with Alzheimer's, the research shows us that what reduces risk for heart disease will also reduce risk for Alzheimer's disease. So the two go very much hand in hand. So that's more of a, you know, before diagnosis conversation. But oftentimes that does come up with families because they're concerned about their risk if they're caring for a family member with dementia. So we do often have conversations with family care partners about overall brain health, reducing risk, those types of things. And then when we think about sleep for people who are living with dementia and depression, there's really a a fine line here, a very delicate balance of making sure that they're getting enough rest and sleep without it being excessive and potentially being a, a 
substantial side effect of depression. This is where I absolutely encourage people talk to their physician or neurologist because they usually have pretty specific recommendations about exactly how much sleep people should be getting or exactly how much napping they should be doing throughout the day. If my clients don't necessarily get a concrete answer from their physician or neurologist, what I usually tell my clients is your family members should be resting or potentially napping throughout the day to the point where it's not impacting overnight sleep. If we see that somebody is resting or sleeping so much during the day that now they're not sleeping through the night, likely that's too many naps during the day. So it is important for us to consider resting and sleeping because as the disease progresses, individuals will require more and more sleep. So we don't want to just say, you know, blanket statement, this is exactly how much sleep someone needs. We want to encourage rest and sleep. But again, we want to factor in, is this Alzheimer's? Is this Parkinson's? Is this Huntington's? And or is it depression? So all of these things are really delicate balance to make sure that we're promoting a healthy balance between rest and sleep and meaningful activity participation. And along those same lines, I think Again, we should be asking care partners about their rest and sleep and diet because just like we talked about, they're at their own high risk for depression as well. And we want to make sure that we're we're supporting them to have a healthy lifestyle and reducing their risk for depression and other conditions. I was just thinking about those care partners as you were talking and thinking about how just like difficult. I can imagine some of these conversations are where thinking about you're already talking about this neurodegenerative disease, and then maybe there's seems like a prompting to also be talking about depression. What have you learned over the years about having those kind of conversations in a way that's supportive? I think the first thing I thought of with this question is not to rush it. So I think oftentimes in our current healthcare climate, at least in the U.S., we see productivity. We're seeing, you know, how many patients can we see? There's a lot of emphasis on us being able to get to our next patient or next client. I would say that these types of conversations really can't or shouldn't be rushed. So this isn't a conversation I would initiate if I know I only have five minutes left in the session. So this is something that I think we need to be able to slow down, take some time, really make sure that we're meeting care partners where they're at in terms of their level of understanding of, again, not only dementia, but also depression. What do they know about depression? Do they know what the signs and symptoms of depression are. So sometimes we have to really start at the beginning and not assume that they've that they know about it and that they would pick up on it. But once we educate them about what some of the signs and symptoms are, having a reciprocal conversation, asking them for their thoughts and input because as we discussed earlier, care partners they know their family member best often, right? They're the ones who are with them typically more hours than we are. <laughs> so they're going to be able to give us really helpful information about, you know, the the functioning of the individual living with dementia. So I think not rushing, <laughs> making sure we're including them as a really important piece of the puzzle, an important part of this conversation. And as I know we all do when working with this population in general, coming at it with compassion. You know, this this isn't something where we can just kind of throw out the idea of, oh, we think your family member has depression. Good luck, right? We need <laughs> to think about giving them the support and care that they need. I think that that is often what happens with dementia. Unfortunately, that we're seeing it's kind of like, a, oh, yeah, your family member has dementia. Good luck. No resources, no real support. So I want to make sure that we're sitting down, answering questions, <laughs> educating care partners with both the neurodegenerative disease aspect and also the depression conversation. The other thing this is making me think about is like if we're doing these depression screens and talking about suicidal ideation, like these are not things we should be doing in a vacuum. Other disciplines need to be looped in. I feel like our system here in the U.S. currently does not really cater to close 
team multidisciplinary care, but it's really important. You read this article and you're like, well, multiple people need to be involved. Yes. What are practical strategies that you use to like work within a multidisciplinary team? Yeah. So I think I'm coming at this from the perspective of a small business owner with a small practice in the community. I realize that every setting might look a little different in terms of how we're facilitating interdisciplinary approaches and care. For me, I think it was it was really important to get out in the community and learn about what other services were there to build almost my own kind of informal team so that we could support each other with the families with whom we're working. So for example, for me, it was really important to collaborate with another outpatient practice. So I only do the OT piece of things, but it was important for me to have a practice that provided physical therapy and sometimes speech therapy as well. So making sure I knew that team, building relationships with them so we almost function as one unit and can, you know, support each other in caring for this family. But also outside of just allied health professionals, thinking about local psychologists, local social workers or counselors. Sometimes social workers are present in the neurology office or physician office. So you want to get to know uh, social workers. (laughs) They'll end up being (laughs) some of your best friends (laughs) with these, um, working with these families and populations. In addition to counseling support for both the individual living with dementia and the care partner, we want to think about what are some respite options you know, are there local adult day programs? Are there, you know, memory cafes? Are there programs specifically for individuals living with Parkinson's, like rock steady boxing? Is there, you know, in the Philadelphia region, we have some nonprofits that are specifically geared towards supporting people living with dementia and their care partners with arts programming. So all of these different little pockets of professionals have become such a crucial piece of the puzzle. Yes, we need physicians. (laughs) Yes, we need OT, but there are so many more people involved. And then I also think when we are talking so heavily about depression, we also need to know who are we referring to. We're not addressing this in a silo. So I mentioned psychologists, but also do we need to know what the mobile crisis prevention team is in our area if we have one? Where are the hospitals that we're potentially referring to? Are there crisis hotlines that we can be calling? So we want to make sure we have access to all of this information on hand so that we can easily provide it to the families that we're working with. Our seventh grade selves were drawn to this profession because it is so holistic, because we can take these team-based approaches. But the reality, Rachel, is that our systems do not cater to that currently. Like, Yes. And I think I want to ask... What changes need to happen and what changes do you see already that give you hope? Like I hear you talking, I'm like, it almost feels like all the pieces are there and they're not connected. Like, yes, I don't know. What, what are you thinking? Just like big picture moving forward for our profession. Oh, so to your point, we'll start with the the hopefuls. <laughs> the things that bring me hope are honestly, it's usually the, the, small practice providers. There are a lot of people sometimes quietly (laughs) providing these types of support in local communities. Again, I know in the Philadelphia area, this is all I've done in this region for 10 years, and I'm still learning about new programs that are designed just for supporting people living with dementia. So they're often out there, especially if you live in a big city, there's potentially more resources available. It just takes a little digging to find them. Oftentimes, I recommend people look for, of course, like I said, the neurology offices and the social workers there because <laughs> they're a wealth of information. But also, if your region has any networking groups for professionals who work with older adults, that's usually where I find a lot of these providers. So that definitely gives me hope that there are a lot of us out there who are dedicated to providing this care and support and who want to work collaboratively with each other and want to provide this type of interdisciplinary approach to these families. 
In terms of some things that we could improve upon, <laughs> um, where do I start? <laughs> I think the first thing I want to talk about is occupational therapy, specifically in the United States. Unfortunately, we see this as a uniquely U.S. OT problem that OT is not currently well recognized as a leader in dementia care. And that's not necessarily true in other countries. We see OTs embedded into neurology offices outside of the U.S. So there, there is a role for us, but I think we need increased advocacy efforts within our country for our role in these spaces and with this population. But that also... It comes from a variety of places. Yes, overall, <laughs> there's not necessarily an understanding, but also within our profession. I would argue that many times OTs don't know that this is something that we could do, that we can be leaders in this space. And, you know, I'm not, not blaming anyone for that. I think that we're often taught under a medical model, under a rehab model. And dementia care really isn't rehab. It's habilitation. It's thinking about the dyad, both the individual living with dementia and the care partner. And how do we support them as a unit? And how do we consider the priorities of the care partner in our work? How do we you know, of course, we can still adapt the environment and modify tasks, but we're really working on maximizing their current capabilities, not restoring lost function, if you will. So I think that shift in mindset from rehab, rehab, rehab to habilitative care would really advance us as a profession in terms of the support that we're providing to people living with dementia. Yeah, as we talked about like the numbers at the beginning, this is such a big global challenge for us as a society. And I love hearing about how lots of our solutions may be these like grassroots things happening at a local level and supporting those OTs are dotted throughout the country and around the world and bringing change to their local communities. Like that seems like where it starts and some of the work I'm most excited about. And I know you do a lot of work supporting those OTs. So I'm really thankful for that. Thank you, Sarah. I'm very grateful for, for all of our, I mean, all of our OTs, but especially those small business OTs who are really starting from the ground up and focusing on this, this much needed niche. <laughs> yeah. It's greatly appreciated. Rachel, we've talked about so many things today. What's like the final thought you want to leave people on? What's what's the takeaway? I think you kind of talked about this, this a bit, Sarah. I guess I have two takeaways. One <laughs> is that we do collectively need to be more cognizant of identifying screening for depression, even if someone has Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, or potentially other types of dementia, although not specifically noted in this article, that there is a high risk and it's not, it should not be assumed that everyone living with these conditions has depression and that we should be addressing it and treating it separately. And then also, I think I've mentioned this now multiple times, but um, I'll just get on the soapbox one last time the role of the care partner and how crucial that is to working with these families. We really can't treat people with neurodegenerative diseases in isolation. We have to consider who is providing that care and support long-term, who do we need to involve in these conversations and in our treatment sessions, because I think that's really critical at supporting the individual living with the disease. Oh, Rachel, I'm so thankful for this time today. I think if people read the article, it can feel so overwhelming. It can feel a little like over our heads, but as we talk about it, so many of the solutions come back to like our core OT skills, like you were talking about, like coming in compassionately, looking at the care partner, the family system. And I just so appreciate how you've articulated things today and just the big picture work that you're doing. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been an honor and thank you for helping me break down this, this very complex topic. 
<laughs> Thanks. Yes, it's been good to do together. Yes. <laughs> wow, you all, this was just such a rich discussion. I think that understanding those mechanisms behind depression and behind these neurodegenerative diseases really helps us understand how our OT treatments can help patients at the biological level. As we talked about in the podcast, that is kind of, I don't know, next level thinking can feel hard to wrap our brains around, but I really think that that is the direction that we need to be going, not just with this population, but in all of our OT care, like really understanding the power behind occupational therapy. I did want to highlight that Rachel and I will be doing a dementia and OT page on OT potential. We'll be outlining our role in this area and we'll also be spotlighting practitioners who work in this area. So if you are on the OT near me directory and have tagged yourself as working with dementia patients, you're going to be spotlighted on this page. This is definitely an area of our field where we really need to be working together because again, as Rachel and I talked about, there are big system level changes that need to happen to really be supporting people with dementia and their care partners. And lastly, I want to highlight that to earn CEU credit for this course, you will need to log into the OT Potential Club where you can take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge and transform your practice. Take care and we'll talk with you next time.